Our scripture reading this morning comes from Romans chapter 7, verses 15 through 25. For I do not understand my own actions. For what I do not, for I do, let me start that over again. (laughs) There's a lot of to-dos in there. Uh, For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So if I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind. But with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. This is God's word. Now I'm about to be on. There we go. Uh, So good morning. Uh, My name is Jonathan. I'm one of the pastors here, Redeemer City. Thanks for being here uh, as we continue in this series on Romans. uh, In one of the most fun passages to read in all of the Bible, um, as Susan attested to, uh, it's it's uh, it's wordy and and dare I say uh, confusing. Uh, and the passage has caused a fair amount of controversy over the years. And so, uh, as we come to Romans seven, to the end of Romans seven, and we set up for one of the the greatest chapters in all of the Bible, and probably uh, in in all the uh, book of Romans, we got to linger in this stuff uh, for. Uh, today. Uh, There's been a lot of debate over the years on whether Paul is describing a a non-Christian or a Christian's experience. I'm not going to get into a whole lot of that. You'll probably figure out uh, quickly. uh, My belief is he's talking about a Christian uh, and the Christian's experience. Uh, But there are a lot of smarter people with a lot more letters behind their name than I have. I actually have no letters behind my name. Uh, but they have a lot more, and, and, and they think uh, he's not talking about a, uh, a Christian. He's talking about a non-Christian. I'm going to disagree with them primarily because uh, over the years as I've read this uh, chapter and read these verses, I've thought, wow, that's me. I can really identify with that, uh, and I hope that, that you can too. It's the struggle that Paul's describing, the, the, the battle going on inside of each of us that's his subject. And the question is, should we expect the struggle as Paul describes it here, to be the norm for the Christian's experience. Uh, The question is, why should continued warfare be necessary after the achievement of victory? So in a couple of weeks, when we get to Resurrection Sunday, we talk about the victory of Jesus over sin and death. Well, if that's true, then, then why does he talk like this? If you count yourself dead to sin, 
but alive to God through Jesus Christ, as he tells us to do in chapter 6. Will you not have this struggle? Uh, and, and these are significant questions for every person, I think, not only Christians, but if you're here and you're not a Christian, I think so much of what Paul says in this passage is applicable to you, it's applicable to the human experience. I think everyone can identify with or agree with certain statements that he makes. Uh, you may have even heard some of these statements made by uh, your friends and your neighbors, but the fact remains, these are some of the most raw statements Paul makes in all his letters. To quote uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, who uh, Drew has been quoting to us throughout this uh, series and, and is just so insightful in so many ways, and like Patrick, the saint that the Irish celebrated yesterday, he was Welsh. So I, I'm just pointing that out to the Irish who captured the Welshman and uh, tortured him. He escaped, went back to Wales, and then came back to them as a missionary. But he was Welsh, like Martin Lloyd-Jones, who I'm about to quote. He said this about Romans 7, this particular passage. This subject is difficult because sin is difficult. One of the terrible things sin did when it came into the world was to introduce complications. This not only sounds complicated, but it is complicated. I had a lot of comfort reading him saying that about this. Made me feel better about my own complicated condition and struggle in reading this and then trying to explain it to you, uh, which I can tell you right now I'm not going to do a very good job of. I've struggled this week with, with what to say, uh, and I think sometimes our desire to explain or make sense or wordsmith our way through something can take away the mystery of it. And so I'm probably not going to answer all of your questions or clear up the complexities uh, as you see there, uh, and I'll, I'll mention this in a second, a complicated condition is what I'm calling this or, or part of what I'm calling this. It's what we have. Some of you have heard this distinction before, and I think it's helpful as we get into this. There are three Ps, the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and the presence of sin. And in justification, the Bible says it's a legal declaration. In Christ, you're not guilty. Jesus was counted guilty in your place, and he saves you from the penalty of sin but it's a past tense action, okay? Yes, amen, thank you. Sanctification is an ongoing process of being made more and more into the image of Jesus and being saved from the power of sin. That's present tense. So you're saved in the past one time from the penalty of sin. You're ongoingly saved from the power of sin. And then glorification is the state upon death where you are no longer subject to the presence of sin. That's a future tense thing. So we're talking about three different tenses. And the debate has come because of statements Paul makes elsewhere in Romans about being united to Christ and being delivered from sin. So can you get to a place in this life where you aren't struggling with sin? That's a way to kind of express the rub here. The question is, to what extent are we saved from the power of sin? We might have died to sin, but sin hadn't died in us. And that's the tension Paul's wrestling with. So I want to uh, walk through the passage under these three headings. It's on your outline, uh, on the insert in your worship folder. Uh, and we begin with a complicated condition. And it's where I got the title from. There's this double reality that Paul's describing. And I want to make the case that it is normal for every Christian uh, because it was normal for Paul, or at least it seems to be as he describes it here. Secondly, though, what are some dangers of not taking the passage seriously? You can fall into, you can fall into some, well, some pitfalls 
There's some things that can go wrong uh, as you wrestle through it. And I want to just highlight a couple of those and, and warn us of a couple. And then lastly, uh, what's the only response we can come to? We've got a huge problem here, right? But the great deal, or the, the great news is uh, Paul ends by giving us hope in verses 24 and 25, where the wretch, what a great word, the wretch meets the rescuer. The wretch meets the rescuer. So those three things. Um, first, the complicated condition. Has anyone ever said something like verse 15? Have those words ever come out of your mouth? You look there in verse 15. Maybe you said that this morning. I mean, certainly, please tell me that I'm not the only one who has ever said, I just don't understand why I do that. Thank you. Thank you. I, he said, I do not understand my own actions. This is the Apostle Paul, like probably the single greatest church planter in the history of the world, right, who said, I don't understand my own actions. He lays out this inner struggle that's very complicated, to say the least. I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Of course, you can also have the ability to carry out something, but not the desire to do it. Parents uh, know about this when they ask their children to do something that they're very able to do, but may not have the desire to do it, right? So, uh, you know, I'm able to take out the trash, but I don't really desire to do it. Um, one that's particularly powerful for me, and, I, and it's gonna, you're gonna hear it and think that's silly, <clears throat> but, you know, there's a time to go into more deep stuff, and there's a time to keep it light. This whole sermon could be very deep, and, you know, I'd sort of just put myself on the altar here, but chosen not to do that today. Um, so for me, I desire to quit biting my fingers. I have this compulsive sort of finger biting thing that I do, but I can't seem to muster the ability to carry it out. I want to stop, but I can't. In one instance, I need my desire to change. I need, to, I, I need my, my child to want to take the trash out. In the other, I need my ability to change. And Paul says repeatedly that what he wants and what he finds that he too often does are not the same. So look carefully, and we're going to read slow because I would do the same thing Susan did because it is so wordy, right? But look at verse 15, okay? Verse 15, 16, and 17, he says one thing, and then he kind of repeats himself in the next little section. He says, for I do not do what I want but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good, uh, uh, nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Now, I don't know about you, but I find verses 17 and 20 really interesting. Okay? Look at verse 20, or excuse me, 17. It is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Verse 20. So it is no longer I who do it, 
but sin that dwells within me. Huh? That, he, he sounds a little spiritually schizophrenic, doesn't he? Who's the real Paul? The Paul that says, I want to do the right thing, the thing God says to do and, want, and, and, and wants me to do, but, but there's another in me. There's, there's sin. There's an it. And it dwells within me and keeps me from doing the thing that I want to do. It's kind of like this. You know, we all have conflicting desires. So when's the last time you said to, uh, you know, friend, family member, spouse, something like that, I just feel torn. I'm just really torn about what to do. Right? Anybody with me? You've had this experience. Thank you. Right? In a particular situation, how do you answer the question, what do I most want? In your, in your heart of hearts, we use this language. You know what I'm talking about. How do you, what do you really feel like you want in your heart of hearts? And in a way, it's kind of like the angel on one shoulder and the devil on the other. I mean, that's, that's the sense you get as you read this, that Paul has this angel on one. You know what you're supposed to do. You need to do it. And the devil on the other. No, don't do that. That's not fun, right? There's this battle going on. It's, it's, it's really significant. It's really profound. And yet it's really confusing. It's really complicated. So I thought about, okay, how to illustrate this. So here goes. 1 John 3, verse 9. Uh, John says, God's seed abides in the one who has been born of God. So you're born in sin. And we're all born ruined from the root but a seed gets planted when we're united to Jesus by faith, so much so that the Bible says we're crucified. Paul's been laboring to, to show this. We're crucified, we're dead, we're buried, and then we're raised with him. The seed of faith implants itself, and then what happens? Well, what happens to this seed is the same thing that happens to every seed. It, something is added that wasn't originally there, and the seed begins to grow, the roots begin to deepen, and the new seed increasingly sucks nutrients and life from the soil all around it. And yet at the same time, the sinful nature is dying, and it begins to fight back. So we can feel those roots of that seed, God's seed, that abides in the new Christian, and as the Christian grows, gets older and more mature in the faith, those roots begin to deepen, and they're sucking the moisture, the, so, the, uh, the nutrients away from the old, but the old fights back. So it's a matter of addition in terms of, of what Paul's describing. Something that wasn't there gets added, right, instead of being, being taken away, but at the same time, something's being taken away. That, that's the best I could come up with. That sin that seeks after what I hate, Paul says in verse 15, Sin seeks to wrap its decaying roots around the heart of the Christian. And I know you know what I'm talking about with that. It's why we fight. It's why the Bible calls it a root of bitterness. It's why we fight that when we're wronged or when we're in pain. It's those, it's those, uh, those old roots trying to spring to life, trying to just pull a drop of water. Now, remember the big picture, the argument Paul's been making since Romans began. Everyone needs a righteousness, Right? Where will it come from? Well, the call to worship, I absolutely love this. In Isaiah 45, and then we read on Friday in Isaiah 46 in community Bible reading, he says, uh, hang on, let me find it. Verse 24, 
on the, call, on the call to worship, only in the Lord are righteousness and strength. He told them that thousands of years before Jesus came. So it's been a problem. It's been an issue ever since the beginning of time. And Paul says, where will your righteousness come from? How will you get it? Are you sure you have it? It's a need we all have to be right and to be okay. And all this in Romans 7 is another argument to say, even as a Christian, freed from the dominion of sin, you are incapable of keeping the law. Your righteousness will absolutely never come from within you. You are powerless. You didn't contribute one single ounce to your being made right, and you don't contribute any goodness now to doing the right either. It's just a laboring, just hammering, trying to hammer this home and using this as an illustration from his own life. On the one hand, in Christ, the real you loves God's law. You delight in it. You long to serve it. On the other hand, in your members, whatever that means, we all have members. Basically, it's, you know, word for your flesh. In your members is a law that imprisons you to sin and captures your flesh. On the one hand, in Christ, the real you wants to do right. And on the other hand, in your members, another part of you wants to do wrong. Anybody there? Okay. Not just, are you present? I didn't mean that. I meant like, is anybody there right now? Like, were you there last night? Okay. Grove Roots is great and all, but it's a great opportunity to work this out right here. Just saying. A lot of temptation there. So which is it? Which is it? Both. Because I think Paul's describing his experience in the present. He uses present tense verbs, which I think makes it a description of the Christian life. Now, what are some warnings here? Well, the assurance of pardon uh, that Brad read to us a few minutes ago, if you look there in your worship folder... I chose this because the Bible doesn't promise us sinlessness. It doesn't say there's a point at which you're going to have arrived. Look at what John says in, in, in verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. As if to say, the truth, that is the way, the truth, and the life, that is Jesus Christ, the seed of faith abiding in you, isn't there if you say, I have no sin, but then he says, if we confess our sins, he forgives us. Not only that, he cleanses us. And then he goes on to say, I'm saying these things to you so that you will not sin or so that you may not sin. And then the very next word, but, but if anyone does, oh man, we have an advocate. Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he's the propitiation for our sins. He turned the wrath of God away from us and onto himself and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Amazing, amazing news, right? Now, what are these warnings? Well, first one is, no one gets so advanced in their Christian life that they no longer see their sin. In fact, the more mature and discerning we get, we find the more we see of the sin in our hearts. That's part of what Paul is, is showing us here. The more holy we become, so to speak, the less holy we feel. And when you find yourself making progress towards sinful habits and attitudes, you'll often find yourself more aware of deeper roots of self and rebellion than you ever realized before. Anybody there? Have I ever had that experience? You make some progress. You feel like you're, 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 you're victorious over some, some sinful habits. 
And yet in the, in the victory of that, you, you, you go a little bit deeper and you find, holy cow. Holy smokes, I'm way more awful than I thought I was. Unless you can say with Paul, verse 18, I know that nothing good dwells in me. You'll be tempted, even subtly, to think that you can keep the law, that God does owe you something for your moral and your good acts. There's got to be something good in there, right? Wait, Paul said, Paul said, you're saying, Paul, I know that nothing good dwells in me. Nothing? Nothing. Yes, that's what he said. Nothing. And, and, and right there is where you're most likely to end up minimizing sin, deflecting sin, and thus you become naive and you give up battling sin. It's a big danger. Unless you can say, oh man, I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. Right? That is in my flesh. What's the good that dwells in me? Well, he says it. There's a part of me that delights in God's law. What is that? That's that seed. It's that seed of faith that's sprouting and growing and getting bigger and taking over. And it will take over. If you're in Christ, it will take over. Remember, we are dead to sin, but sin hasn't died in us. Now, in addition, no one gets so advanced that they don't struggle with sin. This is Paul the Apostle who's talking. Don't forget that, right? If you're thinking that the longer you're a Christian, the less struggle you'll have, Paul's testimony here would seem to, to contradict that. You should expect a fight because sin's like a wounded bear. Far more dangerous when they're wounded, coming after whoever has wounded them, or, or, or they're just, they're far more ornery than they already are, right? Sin's like a snake whose head has been smashed. Very appropriate given the snake we find in Genesis 3 and the promise of God in Genesis 3 that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Well, what happens when you step on the head of a snake? The rest of it begins to do this, right? It's not dead yet. It's flailing around. You should expect to fight. We should expect a fierce battle because our sinful nature has been mortally wounded by the new birth brought by the Spirit through Jesus' work on the cross and ultimately in the resurrection. John Owen, who was a Puritan pastor from the 1600s, said this, when a Christian first sets on a lust or a sin to deal with it, it struggles with great violence. It, that is the sin or the lust, struggles with great violence to break loose. It cries with earnestness and impatience to be satisfied and relieved. Anybody been there? Yeah, Amen. Uh, an illustration would be just think of very compulsive sins or, or, or addic- you know, uh, gambling, pornography, or people who find themselves uh, maybe addicted to uh, drugs or something like that. And the whole idea of quitting cold turkey. So what does it mean to quit cold turkey? And what does detoxing a person in those settings look like for somebody who quits cold turkey? We'll talk to people who work in those environments, and they'll tell you, man, it's bad. Why is that? Because of a dependence that's been created uh, chemically, physiologically, and and otherwise. But the point there is, and I'm just using that as an illustration of, of of a spiritual reality, and that is there's something fighting in there. And when you cut it off, 
when a Christian first sets on a lust or sin to deal with it, man, it's going to fight. So why the battle? And Paul tells us that sin lies close at hand. It's right there. Uh, If you go over to verse 21, he says, I find it to be a law, a law. That, that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. What did, what did God say about evil all the way back on page four of the Bible? Watch out. It's crouching. It's crouching right at your front door. And as soon as you step out the door, it's ready. It's going to pounce on you like a lion hunting its prey in the tall grass. But notice what Paul says. He says he feels this way when what? Verse 21. When I want to what? Do right. Evil lies close at hand. The brokenness of our flesh is so profound and deep that there are appetites of the flesh that we want to follow. We we gratify the flesh and we want to do it again. Why? Because the flesh is opposing you at every turn. If you're a Christian, in Galatians 5 verse 17, Paul says to this church at Galatia, The desires of the spirit and the flesh are battling. And then he says this, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Man, that gives me a lot of hope. Scary at the same time, right? Uh, Sinclair Ferguson, uh, who who wrote a, a great book on the Christian life, said this, we might have died to sin, but sin hasn't died in us. And that's the tension Paul's wrestling with. If you're a Christian, what Paul has been arguing is that sin's status has changed. That is, it no longer reigns. In our relationship to it, we are no longer slaves. And then he says this, surviving sin is not reigning, but it is real and must be fought. Uh, There's a book called The Enemy Within, written uh, a few years back. It's a great book, uh, and it's 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 some of the, trying to make a little more modern, more accessible, some of the teachings of John Owen who I quoted a few minutes ago, uh, on sin, um, but it's called The Enemy Within. And the author makes this illustration that I thought was helpful. He says, the heart in some ways is like the haunted house. The thing we don't like about haunted houses and the thing that scares us is there's something unknown, something deadly inside of them, right? So when you see a movie where someone's about to go into a haunted house, you hear the people in the theater saying what? Don't go, don't go in there. What are you doing? You know, I love how they just bring you into the, into the movie, it's, it's wonderful. Why do they say that? Well, because it's dangerous in there. And Lungard, the author of this book, says, in a sense, we have a haunted heart with hidden horrors in it, and we're tempted not to go in. But actually, we need to go in. What's the difference between us and the victim in the haunted house movie or the horror story? Well, the difference is, actually, we need to go in because unlike them, doesn't always bode well for them. It doesn't usually bode well for them. Well, let's be honest, it never bodes well for them. That's part of the reason we go see those movies, because some sick thing inside of us. But the difference, the difference between them and us is we can go in to the haunted horrors of our heart with confidence and be assured of ultimate victory over those sins. So we need to actually enter into the deepest recesses of our heart and see the blackness but find the grace of God there and then be, begin to, able, uh, to be able to put those sins to death. So did you hear the ray of hope in there that he says? How can we be assured of the victory? 
And that's where I want to finish. Well, look at the way Paul finishes this section. It's so, it's so incredible. He says all this stuff, and you can just feel it building and building. And I see in my members another law, verse 23, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Oh, oh, wretched man that I am. He expresses a cry of longing, and he immediately follows it with this cry of confidence and thanksgiving. There's an exclamation point here because the same person is writing verse 24 and verse 25. These aren't different people. I can lament my corruption. I can yearn for a deliverance, a daily deliverance, and an ultimate deliverance. I can know the impotence of the law to rescue me or save me or even comfort me. I can revel in God through Jesus Christ as the Savior all at the same time. Yeah. It allows me, here's what 24 and 25 do, what they prove to us to do. They allow us to be honest about our wretchedness and certain about our forgiveness at the same time. I don't have to run from the battle. I don't have to run from the struggle. I can be honest about my sinfulness, not because it isn't a big deal, not because, well, you know, that's just the way it is. That's just who I am. Sorry. Yeah, I'll try. Uh, I, I know I need to work on that. You know, and the people that say that around you, if you haven't experienced them working on it, you kind of think when they say that, yeah, right. You're not really serious. No, no. Paul's very serious about battling the sin in him. He's, he's not making it not a big deal. But I can, I can run into the battle. I can be honest about who I am because I have certain victory in Jesus Christ. That's what he says. Thanks be to God. Another Puritan, Thomas Watson, said this, Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Man, when we read God's law, when we look at our own efforts and failings, our only response, our only response can be, O wretched man, O wretched woman that I am, who will deliver me? And the word deliver is important. See, Paul's assumption is that he cannot deliver himself. He needs to be delivered. It's passive. He needs to receive something. And whenever deliverance is needed, the person rescuing always has to go to where the one needing rescue is, right? Think about firefighters. My friend Brian is a firefighter, and, and he, would, uh, he, would, he would echo this. I didn't check this with him, but I'm pretty sure this is right. They typically don't stand on the ground in front of the burning house and yell to everybody inside, hey, find a window, jump out. What are you, an idiot? Your house is on fire. Jump out. I mean, why would, why would they have to put on all that gear and learn how to breathe through a mask and all that stuff if that's all they did? I mean, you and I could do that. Your house is on fire, idiot. Jump out. They don't do that, do they? No. They run into the burning house, into the burning building, into the flames, into the danger, into the chaos in order to rescue the people who need it. And Jesus Christ came he went into the thick of hell itself, facing its onslaught, facing the horror of death itself, and he grabbed us, and he brought us to safety, and as he did it, the flames swallowed him. Not us, but he had rescued us. He delivered us by becoming us, that we might be, uh, excuse me, that we might become him, in him. Now, 
I borrowed a few of those phrases, but I came up with that sentence all by myself. So let me read it to you again. Because I thought, man, you know, that's probably the best sentence I have in the whole sermon. So I'm going to read it again. He delivered us by becoming us. Drew kind of said something like this a couple weeks ago. So, yeah, I borrowed some from him too. That we might become him, but he only did all that in him. You know, you only get that when you come into him, united to him. And that's your assurance of victory. You can't have one of these cries without the other. To cry out for help, an honest assessment of our brokenness is very humbling. But at the same time, to cry out in thanksgiving and confidence in the work of Jesus is emboldening. It fills you with courage. And so, if all you ever say is, if all you ever walk around saying is, oh, what a wretch. What a wretch. What a wretch. And listen, I, I, I've been in churches that do that. It's depressing. And if you look at the faces of everybody in the church, you think, wow, okay, not a place I want to hang out to very long. You'll be depressed and discouraged if all you ever do is walk around saying, oh, what a wretch. God, I'm so awful. You, if that's your propensity, if you're melancholy, if you're sort of a, a, a lower person, and this is me, this is me, so I'm talking to myself, I need to hear the gospel say, cheer up. In Christ, you are far more loved than you can ever imagine. In Christ, God the Father's disposition toward you is only and always and ever perpetual delight forever. Yeah. My friend Timo had to teach me that one. He still is. But if all you ever say is, oh, what a Savior. What a Savior. What a Savior. You'll tend to walk around naive about your sin. And if you're not careful, you'll end up self-righteous about other people's sins and other people's struggles. You need to hear the gospel say, cheer up. You are way worse than you think you are. Way worse. Oh, way worse. Grace is only amazing for wretches, which is why John Newton wrote it that way. For those who experience the miracle of received righteousness, who know they've been rescued. Paul says, through the law you can't win, but through Christ you can't lose. Man, he won the righteousness we need through the death that we deserved. So we can say, man, how sweet the Savior. How bitter the sin. How sweet the Savior. How bitter the sin. Until the sin gets really, really, really bitter Jesus will not be the sweetest thing. And so embrace that double reality this morning, and, and by faith I think you will find the wonder and glory of God. You will find yourself wondering. And as, as Brad read at the outset, only in the Lord are righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who are incensed against him. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel that's you if you're in Christ, shall be justified and shall glory. So let's pray. Oh, Jesus, golly, um, who will deliver us? So often we come to the place, sometimes, it's, sometimes we haven't been awake for 10 minutes. Sometimes it's at the end of the day. Sometimes it's in the middle of the day where we just say, oh, wretch, Oh, wretched man that I am, golly, who will deliver me?
and our very next thought because of the gospel, because of the good news of you doing what we could not do is thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so, oh Jesus, may you present yourself, may your gospel and the good news of your work on our behalf become sweeter and sweeter and sweeter and sweeter as our sin seems to grow more bitter and more bitter and more bitter. And may those two things work hand in hand that we might humble ourselves before you, that we might take great courage in you, and that you might be glorified as a result, we pray in your name. Amen. Uh, And so receive this word as you go. This is the promise that as you go, God goes with you. Uh, he, he, we ask him to turn his face toward us. Uh, and so no, no matter, no matter your, your state today, whether you're more on the wretchedness side, you're more on the joyful and the savior side, that you can walk in the tension of those two things being true at the same time and revel in the fact that as we just sung, we've been forgiven. Every stain has been washed away uh, at the foot of the cross. So receive these words as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.